I was going to say was well rested. I guess that depends on on where you were at or what your responsibilities were for this holiday season. Sometimes it's rest. Sometimes it's uh, a lot of work and prep work, but hopefully it included a lot of food and uh, that you were uh, that you were able to fill your belly on Thursday. And now we can come here and we can fill ourselves with the Word of God today. Amen. I look forward to that. Now, being being on this other side of Thanksgiving, uh, we begin to look forward to a another holiday that is on the horizon. It's hard to believe that we are just five weeks away from the end of the year, five weeks left in this calendar year, and even less so until Christmas. And we are going to dive here this morning into a very familiar story, uh, but I want to look at it from perhaps an outside perspective here today, and uh, we are going to just let the Word speak to us this morning about the subject of being an outsider. And I do want to welcome all of our, all of our youth with us here this morning in our adult Bible class as the Bowmans traveled down to be with family this weekend, so I'm glad that you guys are with us today. As you see this, uh, the traditional nativity set, and as I was traveling back from Michigan on, on Thanksgiving Day and visiting my sister-in-law up in Michigan and was traveling back through some country roads, and we went by this one house that just had this beautiful, beautiful nativity set that was sitting out in front of the house, and in that nativity, you had Mary, you had Joseph, you had the baby that was lying there. You had the shepherds and the kings and the star that was overhead. You had a couple of animals that were displayed there in the stable. But what was not found were some of the outsiders, the ones that also did play a role but aren't there in our traditional nativity set, the ones who we don't always think of. But uh, the fact is that God always loves including the outsiders. They should be there. The fallen ones, they were there, but they were unseen. The prideful ones, and the, ne- the negligent, the ones who could have been there, but they, they stayed away. You and me, we were not there, but yet that was all about us. The fact is, what took place there on that day, 2,000 so, some odd years ago, that was all about you and me. Because God loved us. God loved me who was yet in my sin, and yet he died for me. God loves the outsiders. God, he gave his only begotten son. He became flesh. He robed himself in flesh for the ones who were on the outside. He himself came as an outsider. See, Christmas is for the outsiders. And Jesus, he himself really is the ultimate outsider. And so... This is what we are going to dive into over these next couple of weeks is looking at Christmas from an outsider's perspective. And maybe today, as uh, we're still in November, there's some of you that uh, are still like, hey, let's, let's pause for a minute. And, and as soon as I begin to say Christmas, you begin to think, okay, I know all the story, uh, but, but I believe that today... Uh, this isn't just about diving into a seasonal 
uh, seasonal series here, but I believe that God really does want to speak something into our hearts today. And it's not just about, uh, not just about the presence, and it's not just about the gifts that we would give, but I believe that God wants to reveal something to our hearts. You know, I find, I find the Christmas season an interesting one, especially here in America. There was, if you look at some statistics, it says that 92% of Americans and 96% of Christian Americans celebrate Christmas. 81% of non-Christians in the United States celebrate Christmas as well. Nearly three-fourths of Buddhists and Hindus will celebrate Christmas. Overall, about half of Americans celebrate Christmas in a religious manner. A third of them celebrate it as more of a cultural holiday, and the remainder are simply looking for a reason to party. Also, most Americans believe the basic elements of the Christmas story, that Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary, that he was laid in a manger, and that the angels did announce his birth to some shepherds. These are all facts that were gathered by Pew Research. And even if you are a hardcore avoider of Christmas, which I don't think we have any in the room, but maybe we do, you should know the fact that the birth of Jesus Christ changed the world. The birth of Jesus Christ absolutely changed everything. It was this, uh, the scholar... Uh, Backy, he's a Norwegian scholar, and he wrote a book called When Children Became People. It was the birth of childhood in early Christianities. He says that there are six different ways, or uh, yes, six different ways that the world was changed because of the entrance of a baby there in Bethlehem. There were the children, you see, in the ancient world, children were routinely left to die of exposure especially if they were girls. But Jesus revolutionized the ancient world's view, the ancient worldview of children in these many different ways. He said uh, there, were, there were ways that Jesus, when he came into this world, that he revolutionized not just, uh, not just his culture, but really as, the, as Christianity began to spread worldwide, that it began to affect the world over. You have, in education, you see the effects. The ancients, they believed that education was simply for the elite. But the belief that God came as a child imprinted on his followers' hearts that each child is made in the image of God. That universities such as Cambridge, as you get down the line, and Oxford, and Harvard, and Yale, all of these began as Jesus-inspired efforts. These are education, educational things that stemmed from a belief in Jesus. You have this com- the compassion that began to be seen all over the world. How many hospitals and how many nonprofits today are partnered after the, or are formed after the idea of the Good Samaritan. And the idea that Jesus came for the least of these. That Jesus called us to minister to the least of these. That we see the compassion uh, of of Jesus' followers. We see the fact that when Jesus came into this world and he came as a child, that he came as a lowly one, that 
that uh, we see the compassion that is, is expressed all over this world by those who would follow after Jesus. We see humility, how humility changed the world. That Jesus, he came into this world not as a conquering king. Even though that's what many believed, the Messiah, how he would come and make his entrance. But Jesus, he didn't approach the world in that way, but rather he came as a baby. He came as a baby who once grown, once, once he was grown, he humbled himself to the death on the cross. Not just humble in his beginnings, but humble in his ending as well. That Jesus, even in his life, never never was the one who was uh, who, who ascended to a throne. He was never the one who was, was saying, everybody look at me, but rather he presented himself as a humble savior. He presented himself as a, in, with all humility. And we see that same humility expressed through those who would follow after Jesus. In forgiveness, he changed the world. See, the ancients... They believed in rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. But Jesus, he said, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. See, this baby that was born in Bethlehem upended the notion that it's love, your, love those who love you and hate those who hate you. But rather, it's love your neighbor as yourself. Love the ones who are on the outside. Love the ones who they don't belong. Love the ones who hate you. Love the ones who use you. Love is the, love is the supreme principle that Jesus would teach throughout his ministry. It's a ministry of love. It's a ministry of forgiveness. It's a ministry of reconciliation. The last way that Jesus, actually we probably could keep on going, but uh, another way that Jesus he changed the world is, is through reform, that Jesus, he championed the excluded. He included women in the community of faith. He permitted slaves, and up to one-third of the ancient population at that time was in some sort of slavery or some kind of indebted, uh, indentured servitude. And so what Jesus taught and what the first church, what they believed and clung to was the, the fact that we are all the children of God. It doesn't matter if you're bond or slave. It doesn't matter if you're free. It doesn't matter who you are. We are all the children of God. And every one of us, it doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. That you belong at the feet of Jesus. That you belong with Him. See, these are... Many ways that when Jesus came into the world, things changed. As Paul said, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, it doesn't matter if you're Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, male or female, all of us are one in Christ Jesus. We all are one in Christ Jesus. So before you just say, okay, it's another Christmas season, there's a reason why we celebrate Christmas. It, it's, a, it's a chance to slow down and just be, and begin to think about how did Jesus change the world? In fact, how did Jesus change my world when I allowed Him to be born into me and I began to live a new life, right? 
Last, last Sunday was such a powerful Sunday of testimonies that were shared from this pulpit of, of how lives were transformed by Jesus Christ. Lives were absolutely changed, transformed because of the, of, of a, a G, because of the Spirit of, of God, the one who came and was born there in Bethlehem when His Spirit came to dwell inside of us. Is there anybody else in here who your life was changed? Come on. Your life can be changed when you allow Jesus to come and to take up residence in your heart. So I want to, we're going to start right at the beginning, right at the outset of Matthew chapter 1 here this morning. And it's typically, if you are diving into this, this uh, narrative of, uh, of the nativity of Jesus' birth, you might start in Luke uh, chapter 1, or you might start or Luke chapter 1 and 2. Or uh, for those who are really deep, they might start in John chapter 1, because uh, it tells it in a really different kind of way. But in Matthew, uh, we'll just start right out there at the outset of the New Testament, because this also tells about the birth of Jesus in a unique way. Beginning in verse number 1, I'm going to read this in New King James, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then it begins to go down the genealogies. How Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nishan. Nishan begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So, here this morning, not only are we talking about the outsiders, but I want to talk about the four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus here in the book of Matthew. Because the fact is, she shouldn't be here. The opening words of the New Testament couldn't be more mundane. It's this genealogy, and uh, if you're anything like me, then uh, as you read, maybe your yearly going through the Bible chronologically or going through the Bible, however, uh, you get to some of these genealogies and those are the points where you can make up a little bit of time and you just kind of skim through them very quickly. Uh, and now, if you do read them, uh, you will find on occasion something interesting that pops out within the genealogies. Uh, we see many of these genealogies in the, in the Old Testament books, these uh, times where it's telling us of who begot who, and, and how we see these family trees beginning to form. And there is a purpose to them, but uh, as I said, oftentimes it is something that we just kind of skip over, these mundane words. And uh, Matthew, he decided to open his book with one of these genealogies. Now, these genealogies, this genealogy of Matthew is interesting as we begin to go through it because 
It's very male-dominated, as is pretty much any genealogy, uh, not just in Scripture, but any kind of genealogy of, of ancient text would be male-dominated. Uh, but for this particular genealogy, we do see four notable mentions within it. There are four women who are mentioned. In verse 3, verse 3, we saw that there was a woman named Tamar. Tamar was the one who, uh, who had a child with Judah, the son of Jacob. Tamar was this, uh, the first one of these women who was mentioned. But then as you get down to verse 5, you see two more that are mentioned. The one being Rahab. Now, Rahab, she became the wife of, uh, she became the wife of, let me see, slipped my mind, sorry, Sal, uh, yes, Salmon. And uh, Salmon and Rahab, they had a child named Boaz, and Boaz uh, had a child with another woman who was mentioned named Ruth. And it is Ruth that would become the grandmother of King David. It's King David then that would have a child who really doesn't go by name within this genealogy, but it is she is mentioned here as being the the one who was the wife of Uriah. Of course, this is Bathsheba. So these four women, these are not just any women. Matthew could have included any women in his genealogy. As he's going down this list, there were all of these who had begotten somebody, had begotten that somebody by their wife or by a woman. Every one of them. There's not one person in this list that did not have a mother, right? It's just kind of how it works. But instead of just choosing any woman, he chooses four to include he could have chosen four who were the most holy women, the ones who were the greatest, the ones who, they were the greatest prayer warriors, or they were the ones who they spent the most time uh, just, just helping their, their husbands to, uh, you know, to become something great, or they were the ones who they themselves did something great. But, uh, but those are not the ones that Matthew chose to include in his genealogy, but rather he chose to include Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These are not the ones who you would necessarily classify as being the holy women of old. These are not the ones with a holy pedigree. These are the ones who actually had a lot of scandal in their life. Yeah, these are the women who, as you look back, yet these are the women who, as you look back, are the ones who maybe we can relate to the most. One of these, in fact, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, as a champion of faith. See, this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and, and really I'm leaving even one off of here, and uh, it begins with one fifth and final woman who was Mary. Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, this chaste virgin that was chosen by God. These four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then Mary. This collective of, of these women, of these women who are included, you might say that they 
don't belong in the genealogy of Jesus. And I want to I look at these, these individuals because maybe you, you see these names and you say, well, I don't, I don't know their stories. I don't, I don't know why you're saying they shouldn't be included, but, but we'll get into that. It's, you know, see, see some, in some societies, they, they might shun somebody who would be like Tamar. They might shun a Rahab and a Ruth or Bathsheba, somebody who they don't belong there. It, it, you, you, don't, you don't belong here. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've been around somebody before who they've been ostracized, they've been excluded, they've been rejected because they don't belong in a certain group. Maybe you yourself have felt that way. Like you don't belong in a certain group. I've seen individuals, I've seen people who they've been completely shut out. Now, they might create a life of their own, but there's this, this little part in them that is hurt, this little part of them that, that feel it's, it's, it's different now. They they've have maybe, maybe some calluses that, that have built up in that area, but, but there's, it's underneath those calluses is some pain. Underneath those calluses is, is, is some, some hurt because they have been ostracized from a certain group, and here they are, and, and you know, being being ostracized, being excluded, being rejected. They 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 they're standing on their own two feet, but but they got some pain deep down inside. You see, isolation isolation happens. It's it's uh, it's really it's a very common thing where where people they will be ostracized or they'll be they'll be put out, but. But here's the thing is, is God is not trying to put somebody out because of their past. God is not, it's not, it's not God's desire to shun somebody. It's not God's desire to exclude or to reject, but rather God is the one who is bringing somebody in. See, God is the one who is inviting those who don't belong into his family. See, maybe within those who feel excluded, they might have that shame that comes along with that. I don't know if you've ever been there before yourself, but there's some embarrassment and there's some shame about, man, why do I not belong? Why, why will they not accept me? I would hope that this church, and I don't, I would hope this church that we would be a, a welcoming church. That we, we would not be a church that is, is uh, making anybody feel ostracized or anybody feel like they don't belong. And I, and I believe that we are a welcoming church, but I, I, not to say that we're a perfect church, but we are, I believe that we are a welcoming, welcoming church. And I, I would hope that if you're watching via live stream today or if you're even in this, uh, in this congregation here this morning and you do feel excluded, uh, I, I, I pray that uh, I pray that you could find a, a family in here, that you, could, you today would know that you belong here. You belong here. Lean into this family. Lean in. I'm, I promise you that there are people who love you. There's people who are praying for you. I promise you that you belong in the church, that you belong here today. See, when you, uh, the more and more you feel this way, you might let uh, more and more you feel excluded. That shame may turn into jealousy. That jealousy where you begin to resent somebody and 
and you begin to resent those who they are putting you out. That passive-aggressive behavior you know, becomes like your first choice, and, and, and when somebody fails, you're like, you just want to point it out because, hey, they've made you feel that way before. Of course, that reflects poorly on us as a person, but, but the fact is that you've been put out by others, and so you're, you're fine to make somebody else feel that way as well. You, you may feel aggravated, an aggravation uh, about just about the fact that you don't belong. You might, maybe it's, it's you, your uh, personality to kind of close yourself off and, and you don't want to bring others in into your circle anymore because you are afraid that you might be cast aside again or you are afraid that you might be uh, ostracized again. And, and so for you, maybe you build up the walls. And I was just talking this week as I, as I met, met with, uh, met with the, the group of Inspiration Ministries, these men who are uh, in our Bible study, and we were talking about those who you trust. And if you've ever been, uh, had somebody break their trust, you know, what do you do? And we talked about how we build up walls sometimes. We build up walls and we say, I'm not going to let somebody hurt me again. But those walls are just as much going to hurt you as they are going to hurt them. It's, it's not going to hurt them nearly as much as it's going to hurt you. When you build up those walls, what's, what's going to happen is you're going you're to feel that emptiness and that loneliness. And what God wants to do is he wants to tear down some walls this morning. So if you're sitting here today and you've built up some walls because you felt ostracized or you felt like you don't belong today, God wants to tear down some walls here this morning and let you know you belong. You belong in the family of God. You belong. You belong in Him. You belong. That you're here today and He's, he's welcoming you in. So let's, let's get into their stories. See, Jesus was welcoming these women who they didn't belong. Tamar, she's the one who's mentioned first in this list and she's in verse number three. So Tamar was a woman that uh, is mentioned here, and her story is told in Genesis chapter 38. I'm not going to necessarily read through the story, but I'll tell you what takes place. That Tamar, she was the widowed daughter-in-law of Judah. She had rights under the Levitical law, and she should have been awarded a kinsman redeemer. Understand that? Once you, uh, in that culture, once a woman's husband had passed away, it was the responsibility of the family to then find somebody else, especially if she has not had any children, uh, to find somebody else that she could marry and that she could bear children uh, with. And so uh, it was the one in the family was the closest in relation to her husband that uh, would have the first opportunity to bring her in to uh, to, to marry her. And so uh, for her, this was where she was at. She didn't have any children yet. Her husband had passed away and the family was not holding up their responsibility of providing a kinsman redeemer. So here, they, here she is and she decides to take matters into her own hands. She disguised herself as a prostitute. She decided... She was going to seduce Judah so that she could get pregnant. When her pregnancy was discovered, she was about to be stoned to death. 
when then it was revealed that it was Judah who was the father. Hmm. This is the one that they include in the genealogy of Jesus. Not just to include her, but she is in the genealogy of Jesus. She is the great, however many times over, grandmother of Jesus. Tamar, the one who disguised herself as a prostitute and the one who slept with her father-in-law. The one who she had a child by him, this Tamar. The one who she would then have twin boys who in their line, one of these would become the, in, would, would be in the line of the Messiah, the line of Jesus Christ. Tamar. Tamar. She had every right for others, for outsiders to look at her and say, you don't belong here. But she absolutely belonged. <laughs> Let's look at the next one. Because Tamar's story is very similar to Rahab. See, Rahab, she didn't have to disguise herself as a prostitute because she was one. This was her profession. When the two spies who were sent into Jericho or sent into the promised land uh, met Rahab, this was, this was who she was. She was a prostitute and she brought them in. She hid them uh, there in Jericho and allowed them to escape. She was the one that tied the thread or the the rope that would go out of her window that when the walls of Jericho fell, her and her family survived. But Tamar, or I'm sorry, Rahab, she was not married at that time. And so after after Jericho was destroyed, she came in and began to to come into the family of, of the Israelites. And it was Rahab who married one of these Israelites and uh, she married the great-grandson of Tamar. It's kind of fitting. So Rahab, this prostitute, she then has a son. And uh, she, she had married uh, Salmon. And Salmon uh, would then have a child. And Salmon's child would then go on to marry a woman named Ruth. Now Ruth... She was a Gentile as well. She was a Moabitess. She was of the Moabites. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you you might recall that the Moabites were some of the most hated people of God because of how they got their beginnings. The Moabites were the ones who, uh, it was the daughter of Lot, who slept with their father and had a child by him. And out of them, uh, this, they had a child named Moab, and that, they became the Moabites. The Jews were prohibited from intermarrying with the Moabites. It was strict instructions from God. Do not marry a Moabite. And yet, we have Ruth, a Moabite, that when Obed goes into this, uh, goes into living there in, in Moab, she becomes the, the, the wife of one of them. And she comes, and it is Ruth who would come, and this outsider, this one who doesn't belong, this one who, when you look at her, you might say, she shouldn't be here. 
But she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Now, as we go down to David, this great king of Israel, we see that there is one particular. Now, David, he married several women. women. He had several wives, as was the custom of that day, especially for the kings of that day. But there was one in particular that he, uh, that he married. Her name was Bathsheba. She's not mentioned by name in the genealogy, but uh, rather she's mentioned as the wife of Uriah. Well, that ought to tell you right there why she doesn't belong. If she was the wife of Uriah, yet she had a child by David, you know that she shouldn't be there. She was the one who David, this loyal, uh, who David went and he slept with this, this woman and uh, one of his most loyal soldiers that he ended up having a child with his wife, with Uriah's wife. And you see her and Bathsheba, this one that did this awful thing, or that David did this awful thing to her. And you realize, and you look at her and you say, she shouldn't be there. Yet David married her. And this union, out of this union, they had a child named Solomon. So Solomon, he would become the next great king of Israel. So here is what we find out about Jesus. Now in his lineage, in his genealogies, there were some skeletons in the closet. I don't know, anybody ever researched their genealogy? And you find somebody as you're researching and you, uh, I don't, some people get really deep into researching their genealogies. And you find somebody and you're like, wow, that person? I'm related to, I'm related to this person who did this awful thing. It's like, you're shocked. You're shocked to find out sometimes the, in your genealogy, the ones who they did some awful thing. Now, it's great when you look at your genealogies and you see maybe somebody who did something wonderful. Maybe a Nobel Prize winner or a, a president or some king or some, maybe some prince of some, uh, some other nation. But, but you have, if you have those in your genealogy, you, you say, hey. Guess who I'm related to? Guess who I have in my genealogies? If my wife were up here, she could tell you that um, I think it's by marriage and all of this, a cousin of hers, but relation to Chuck Norris. That's somebody that you want in your genealogy, right? You want something great, but when you find those people who you are ashamed of, there's something a little different. When you find somebody who was a liar, somebody who was the outcast, the fornicator, the murderer, these are the things that typically you might want to hide within your genealogies. Within your family tree, you just kind of erase that one, erase their history. But not Jesus. When Jesus' family tree was told, he says, I want everybody to know that the outsiders belong. I want everybody to know that those who, when you look at them, you say, they shouldn't be here. I want to highlight them to let them know that they're right where they belong. <laughs> that as soon as you begin to think, I shouldn't be here, I've, done, I've messed up too many times, I've made too many mistakes. I wasn't born into the right family. 
I have, I'm an outcast. Nobody likes me. I don't, I don't belong here. Jesus says, let me show you those who have felt the same way before. And I need you to know that you are right where you're supposed to be. That you are right where you're supposed to be. That you belong right in my family. That you belong here today. You see, it's in John chapter 1 verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14. It says that the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father that was full of grace and truth. If you read this in the message version, it says that the Word became flesh and blood and it moved into the neighborhood. It moved into the neighborhood. That that the hood that Jesus moved into, it was not the nicest neighborhood. One empire after another had trampled upon Israel. It had wiped out Wiped them out from the promised land. Now they were still living there, but, but the Assyrians had ransacked it. The Babylonians came in, they destroyed it. The, uh, the Persians, they came in, they defeated Alexander the Great. Now the Romans were in control. Eventually we have here Antiochus Epiphanes who came along. He waged war on Israel and the Jews. They rose up. And, but here, now Jesus, he's being born into this place of the Roman conquest that's Israel is in bondage. Israel is there, cowards, this cowed nation, this neighbor, this is the neighborhood that Jesus moved into, this, this place that has a past, this place that, that has really not even much future, but Jesus is here and he's born, he's born, he becomes flesh. Hmm. That's how Jesus was born. Philip Yancey, He writes in his book, The Jesus That I Never Knew. He says, the more unsavory the characters, the more at ease they seem to feel around Jesus. People like these found Jesus appealing, a Samaritan social outcast, a military officer of the tyrant Herod, a quizzling tax collector. In contrast, Jesus got a chilly response from the more respectable types, the pious Pharisees, A rich young ruler who walked away shaking his head. Nicodemus sought a meeting under the cover of darkness. Goes on to say, I remarked to a class how strange this pattern seemed. Since the Christian church now attracts respectable types who closely resemble the people most suspicious of Jesus on earth. What has happened to reverse the pattern of Jesus' day? Why don't sinners like being around us? Hmm. See, we say that we want to be like Jesus, and I'm drawn to a close here. We say that we want to be like Jesus. We sing, I want to be like Him. We say, I long to be like Him. But I need to ask the question here this morning, are we really like Jesus? Are you really like Jesus today? To this point this morning, I've been talking to you as if you are the social outcast, as if you are the one who has been excluded. And I hope that you'd be ministered to here this morning if that is you. But now let me shift the focus. Because Jesus, He brought them in. He made sure that others who society would exclude, He did not exclude them. So are we like Jesus? Do we include or do we exclude? 
Do we welcome or do we shun this morning? What do we do? Are we going to bring in the ones who they've been set cast aside? Do we welcome them in? Do we try to find some common ground somewhere? I want to encourage you to do that here this morning. Being excluded is hurtful. Being intentionally excluded is even more hurtful. Being intentionally excluded by church people is even more hurtful. Finally, being intentionally excluded by church people at Christmas is almost beyond bearing. It's it's rare that you will... You'll find me quoting Martin Luther here, but this is an accurate portrayal of the life of Jesus that he says. He said that Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Now, if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one. But put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and let's help them. Well, let's be like Jesus today. I'll close it out here this morning. In fact, if we could stand, I'm just going to close this with time of prayer. I want to just open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just read three verses here. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, you read that list, and you say, there's a whole lot of people that are going to be excluded. And the fact is that God hates sin. And those who would remain in sin, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But also the fact is that such were some of you. <laughs> All of those things. We can raise our hands in this place and our feet and say, yeah, that was me. That was me. In fact, even still today, some of us might trip up and say, that's that's still me on occasion. But thank God for His grace and His mercy. Thank God for His love. Thank God that now we are washed. Now we are sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank God for that today. Well, could we just... Lift up a hand here this morning. I know our Sunday school classes have made their way back in. But all around this place, I just want to pray for the Tamars and the Rahabs, the Bathshebas and the Ruths. I want to pray for them here this morning. Not, not for those particular women, but those who feel excluded. Maybe you're sitting here today and you feel like an outsider. You feel like you're excluded. But maybe there's somebody that God has sent for you to minister to today. And you can reach out to them. Could you just call out their name here this morning? Would you just ask God, God, give me a clear heart, God. Would you help me, Lord, to be uh, extra conscious in this day, Lord. Help me, Lord, to find those who they feel like they don't belong. God, would you help me to, to include them in? God, would you help me to welcome them into the family? God, would you just move on us here this morning? Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, if you could just pray as we go into the song here this Don't have much
much to breathe. My heart's told. 